is understanding what the principles are for true disciples, true followers. What, what is true faith? Many people come to Christ, it has been said, because they want fire insurance. They want to be saved from the punishment of hell. They come to Christ expecting only blessings, not obligations. They want the rewards, but they don't want to uh, handle the responsibilities. They don't recognize what true repentance is, that it is a recognition of our sinfulness before God and an abandonment of those sinful practices as we trust in the only way for salvation, Jesus Christ, and that our sin brings the rightful wrath of God down upon us. One thing that we must say is that not all people who say they are Christians are disciples. That is the, that is the heaviest burden for me as a pastor, to know that there may be people in our own fellowship, right here, right in this room, or people who are attached to us, even in membership, that are really not Christians. That's a heavy burden for me. There's a great danger in people professing Christ without possessing Christ. A lot of people can say the right words and have no actions behind them and feel that because of some prayer they prayed or, or some action they took as a child or young person, that they're okay no matter what their life looks like today. There's, there may be no commitment at all. There may be no fruit at all. And they still feel as if they're followers of Christ. Two passages that would be worthy of your study, I'm just going to read them this morning, are from Luke 14 and Matthew 10. Just listen carefully to these. Great multitudes followed him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brother and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Whoever amongst you, intending to build a tower, does not sit down first and count the cost, seeing whether he has enough to finish it, lest he lay the foundation and is not able to finish, and all who see begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. What king, going to make war against another king, does not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? Else, while the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks conditions of peace. Likewise, whoever of you that does not forsake all cannot be my disciple. Matthew 10 says virtually the same thing, adding, Whoever confesses me before men, him I will also confess before my Father in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, him also I will deny before my Father in heaven. Whoever does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it, and he who loses his life for my sake will find it. There are tremendous demands placed on followers of Jesus Christ. Most people just want the delights. Most people just want to be sure that they're not going to hell. And then now I can live my life however I want. And they ignore these very strong admonishments from the Lord. He's not mincing words when he makes these statements. That he demands committed, devoted, consistent, forsaking of sin followers. Here's the problem. Churches today seek for people to make a decision, not to make a disciple. I've said that to you a lot. 
It is, we don't try to make decisions. Like, we count the decisions that were made. We seek to make disciples. That is the command of Matthew chapter 28. And grace that hasn't changed us really hasn't saved us. And so we've been looking at these 12 initial disciples of Jesus who he made into apostles and our study is Master Make Me, and we've been looking at all of these different men and talking about their different characteristics and qualities, uh, from Peter to Thomas last week, all of the different things, and we're not going to review all those this morning. But this morning we are coming to the final group of four. I've said this over and over, that in the, in the Gospels and in Acts, there are four uh, lists of the disciples. And they're, they're 12, of course, and they, they're in three groups of four. The first four we have no problem remembering, Peter, Andrew, James, and John. The second four are a little bit more unknown, and they, uh, some of them uh, have kind of are highlighted in the scripture, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, and Thomas. You, you would probably get all those. But I can imagine, if you were on Jeopardy, and you saw the Bible category, and you got the daily double. And you're like, I know the Bible. You already had the little interview with Alex Trebek, and you said, I'm a great churchgoer. I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. Oh, so I'm going to make it a true daily double, Alex. And the question is, name, besides Judas Iscariot, the last three disciples by name. I imagine that almost every one of us would lose all our money and go to zero. How embarrassing is that? Here we have three of the initial let's say 11 faithful, eliminate Judas for a minute, who gave up everything to follow Jesus Christ, whose names, I've mentioned this before, are going to be on the stones, the foundation stones of heaven, and we're, we would be like struggling to say their names. You know, we, we wouldn't be exactly sure of who those men are. Well, I hope after today that's not the case. Before announcing our theme for today, I want to share a little bit about each of the three, and I do mean little bit because there's hardly anything about these guys in the Bible. There's virtually nothing. Here's the three guys, okay? Guy number one, and we're going to group them all together, and then next time we're going to look at Judas, the last uh, disciple. The first one is James, son of Alphaeus. That is all we know about the guy, that he is, uh, his father's name is Alphaeus. I mentioned before that Matthew's father is also named Alphaeus, which seems like kind of a, uh, not a very common name. And it could be that James is Matthew's brother, though because the Bible doesn't say, we won't, we won't say that for certain. If Mark 1540 is to be connected with James, uh, which some people do, he's listed there as James the Less. Now it's possible that that's a totally different James, James the Less. It's possible that James, son of Alphaeus, is James the Less. Let's take the idea that he is. How would you like that to be your memorial? You are the Less. And this is what you're known for. And, and people who believe that James, son of Alphaeus, is James the Less, uh, believe that he was called James the Less to differentiate him between James, son of Zebedee. You know, you got James, son of Zebedee. Well, he's the great one because he's part of the inner circle. This is James the Less. Or maybe it was because he was short. Or maybe it was because he was young. These are all just speculation. If it is the case, then we also know his mother's name. And for a guy named James the Less, you know what his mother's name would be. If you could look at Mark 15, 40 later, his mother's name is the Other Mary. So here, here's some very obscure people. 
Remember the passage where it says Mary went to the tomb and Mary Magdalene, and there was another Mary, that's all you know about her. So it could be that Alphaeus and the other Mary were mother and father to James the Less, and that's all we know about the guy, this follower of Jesus Christ. So build the sermon around that one. Let's look at the second guy. That's the extent of our knowledge. In fact, we would say that the most, the, the hallmark of James is his obscurity, is his an anonymity. Second guy. Now keep this in mind, because if you're ever on Jeopardy, you'll have me to thank. Simon the Zealot. Simon the Zealot. And again, these are in that final group of four. In two places, in, in the lists, okay, the only place we see Simon the Zealot is in the lists. So he's listed four times. Two times he's called Simon the Zealot. Two times he's called Simon the Canaanite. When you read that, your initial thought is going to be, be thinking, oh, he's from the land of Canaan. Some people think he is... Uh, it means that he is from uh, Cana of Galilee, the city where Jesus performed the miracle of turning water into wine, and that they even then say that Simon the Zealot was the husband at that wedding. None of that is provable, and I don't believe any of that is true because the word Canaanite there, when it calls him Simon the Canaanite, that word is simply an Aramaic word that means zealot. So each of the four times, he's basically just being called Simon the Zealot. That does not necessarily mean that he was a zealous person like James, son of Zebedee. He was called the son of thunder with his brother John, and we said, Master, make me zealous for James. It may be that he was. What it really tells us about Simon is that he is part of a political group known as the Zealots. During the time of Jesus, just a quick historical uh, lesson here, there were, there were five or six major political groups in that time. Do you know any of them? Let's, let's say some of them. We're smaller in attendance today. Let's say some of them. The Herodians. These are people who ascribe to uh, the Roman rule, and they followed Herod just by their name Herodian. You can tell what that is. Another group. Say it loud enough so I can hear you over this. The Pharisees. They were, like, strict with the law. It's like outward appearances are all that matters, very ritualistic, even adding to the law. Um, looking down upon others, very self-righteous, hypocritical group, very powerful group in Jesus' day, though, very influential group. With the Pharisees, you have the Sadducees. These are despicable people that have no hope because they don't believe in a resurrection, they don't believe in angels, they don't believe in the spiritual realm, and they really that group really pittered out because who's going to join a group like that? Right? Come join our group. Well, what do you stand for? We stand for no hope. Oh, Okay, that's a really a group I want to be a part of, right? Everybody's abandoning that group, so they just fizzled out into nothing. Then you have the publicans, known as tax collectors, and then you have these zealots. Zealots were people who wanted to overthrow the Roman government. They were looking for a Messiah that would come and help them do that. They thought the Messiah would be strictly a political person who would come and overthrow this hated Roman rule. And these, these zealots are actually people who would walk through the marketplace with something called sicarii on them. It's, it's just known as a small dagger. And they would walk up to people, whether they be Roman empathizers or Roman soldiers themselves, and in a crowded marketplace, they just stab these people and then you know, begin to try to overthrow the government. Uh, very, very um, violent, very militant people. That's Simon. That's Simon the zealot. And imagine which of those other groups of people zealots would be most 
like this with? Which group of all those other groups I mentioned, which of the groups are going to be, there might be two correct answers, which of the groups are going to be really head-to-head with? The Herodians, number one, and the, I would say the tax collectors, these publicans who are helping Rome, they're in Rome's pocket, really. Now think about this. As the disciples are walking around, you got a zealot and you got a tax collector together in that group. See what Christ has done with these men? They have, he has changed them into this cohesive, loving group, and Simon must have abandoned. Remember what we just read in Luke 14 and Matthew 10? You've got to abandon your life. Well, Simon's life up to that point was tied in with the overthrow of Rome. He had political aspirations, military aspirations. When Christ called him, he abandoned all that and became a man of Christ. Pretty, pretty fascinating. Um, third guy, third guy. So we have James, son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot, and then we have Judas, son of James. Also, if you look in John 14, which we're going to be tackling this passage in just a second, verse 22 is, he's not Iscariot. I can imagine he always went around introducing himself that way especially after the death of Judas and after he revealed himself to be a betrayer, I don't think he would say that beforehand because Judas was a, uh, a nice guy, a follower of Christ, it seemed. But afterwards, he's probably preaching, and they're like, hey, you're one of the apostles. Who are you? Judas, not Iscariot, not Iscariot. I'm not him, not that guy. Because he was a goner anyway, but that's how he's referred to. That, he also has a couple of other names in the Bible, just to not confuse you. He's also called Thaddeus, and he's also called Lebius. It could be that he's got these three names, Judas, Thaddeus, or Lebius. And I imagine if you were on Jeopardy, Alex would accept any of those answers. How would you like to be that, that to be your lasting legacy in Scripture? Your lasting legacy is that you're not the Judas who betrayed Jesus. Your lasting legacy is that you were at once a zealot. Your lasting legacy is that your father's name was Alphaeus. So there are our three men. We don't know anything about them personally except what we've just shared. But we do know they were committed to following Jesus. They're still part of the group in Acts 1 praying together. They're, they're, they're with the group on the day of Pentecost sharing the good news of Christ. And what we know about them from tradition and history is that they were committed to Christ to the very end. So, we've taken these three men. What in the world is going to be our lesson? Now, I thought about this on Monday. I always start thinking about it on Monday. I look at these guys. Not much to look at in this case. So is it going to be master make me obscure? Master make me unknown. Master make me anonymous. I mean, I don't think that's what we're going to talk about. What we're going to share today is master make me faithful. Master make me faithful. And here's our outline today, for today. Four thoughts. We're going to skip through or like run through the first three just to get to the fourth. Okay. We know these men were faithful. They stuck with Christ to the end. Part of the reason I chose faithful is because here, here they are, in, in the Bible groups, I'm into these groups of four, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, right? Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, and Thomas. Then you have James, Simon, Judas, and Judas. Now you got the, you, you ever, you remember Sesame Street, three of these things are not like the other, one of these. Okay, you're like, okay, whatever. Children know what I'm talking about. You got, you remember how they'd have the four boxes and the three would be different? Like you'd have three balls and you'd have one slide or something, and okay, we know the slide. These three are to be differentiated from Judas in that they were faithful, Judas wasn't. They were sincere and genuine, Judas wasn't. They were loyal, Judas wasn't. 
So we'll call these men faithful. Here's the outline. Those who, are, those who follow Jesus are faithful to Jesus. Those who are faithful to Jesus love Jesus. Those who love Jesus obey Jesus. Those who obey Jesus enjoy Jesus. One more time. Those who follow Jesus are faithful to Jesus. Those who are faithful to Jesus love Jesus. Those who love Jesus obey Jesus. Those who obey Jesus enjoy Jesus. We're going to race through all of them to get to the enjoying Jesus part. Okay? Because here's three men who abandoned their father, Alphaeus, the other Mary, son of James, the other Judas, abandoned those guys, stayed faithful to Christ, and now and for all of eternity, even in, that, even in their lives enjoyed Christ, but for all of eternity will enjoy him. Those who, are, those, who are, those who follow Jesus are faithful to Jesus. Those who are faithful to Jesus love Jesus. Those who love Jesus obey Jesus. Those who obey Jesus enjoy Jesus. We're going to go real quickly through the first three, so hang on. Those who follow Jesus are faithful to Jesus. Many passages in Scripture point out that one of the qualities of a true disciple is that they hold on. They persevere. They stick with it. They do not abandon their faith. One of the biggest questions that I have in teaching the Bible to high school students at school is what happens when a person who says they were a Christian then later in life reveals them, you know, is acting in a way that is not like a Christian. And many people in the school or, or people that you know will say that they lost their salvation. Well, they, they must have lost it. Well, we know that's not true. A person who is, you know, and you hear this phrase, once saved, always saved, and that is true if a person is genuinely saved. And what we would say about a person who once professed Jesus, once sang songs like we do, once prayed together with us, and now is totally living apart from Christ, we wouldn't say they lost their salvation. We'd say they never were saved, never were saved. And it's just proven that they're not. A true believer will be 90, 95 years old and still proclaiming their faithfulness to Jesus. Hebrews 10, verse 23 urges us, exhorts us to hold fast the confession of our faith without wavering. Luke 8, verse 15 tells us that there's four kinds of soils, but the only soil that is truly, genuinely born again is this good ground that keeps the seed and endures. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 2, Paul writes to the Corinthians and says they are saved if they hold fast to the word that was preached to you. Hebrews 3.14 says we must hold fast the confidence and rejoicing of our hope firmly to the end. Anyone who is a true believer of Jesus Christ must remain faithful. There's a, Derek said it so well in uh, Sunday school this morning when he said there's always a divine side to things, and there's always a human side to things. It is not that we are, it is not a 100% human endeavor to be faithful to Christ. If it was, we'd all be lost. Follow what I'm saying? If it was only up to us to persevere and remain faithful to Christ, we'd all lose it. But we are exhorted to, to hold fast, to grip it, to not let it go, to endure. 
And at the same time, we are told that God preserves us, God protects us, God keeps us to the very end. And so there's that divine side, but there's also that human side that we hold fast our confession. Now, what marks those faithful ones? Those who follow Jesus are faithful to Jesus. Those who are faithful to Jesus, what marks them? What's the next point in our study? Those who are faithful love Jesus. Now we come to our passage, okay? Now we come to our passage. We've taken the term faithful from the mark of these three men who remain committed. Now let's look at this passage in John 14. We, we read the whole, virtually the whole chapter. I want to pick it up in verse number 15. The mark of one who follows Jesus is in verse 15. They will love him. They will love him. If you love me, keep my commandments. Some of you might have a New American Standard or an English Standard Version or a different version of the Bible in your laps today. It should say in those passages, and I think rightly so, and you might even write it in in your New King James, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. It's not so much an exhortation as it is a statement of fact. Those who love me will obey me. And we're kind of jumping into point number three, but I told you we were going to race through it. Loving Jesus is not an emotional feeling. It is not coming in and getting the warm fuzzies during worship and saying, I love Jesus. It is an abandoning of all of our hopes and attachments in this life and honoring him supremely. As I mentioned, the only thing we learned about these men are their family members and their philosophical positions, and they abandoned those for Christ. In Matthew 19, verse 27, and we're going to say this verse a couple of times in our message, Peter, speaking on behalf of all the disciples, says, See, we, he's talking about all of them, we have left all to follow you. We have left all to follow you. Now, loving Jesus, as I said, is not just emotional feeling. We're already in point three. Don't get excited because the message is long once we get into point four. But point three says, those who love Jesus will obey Jesus. That is the mark of your love. Do you obey him? Do you obey him? If you love me, you will keep my commandments. How is love recognized in true believers? It is seen through obedience. Love and obedience are inseparably linked to one another. Jesus here is teaching in his disciples in the upper room that love and obedience are distinctly linked. Why are we not saying then, for this morning's message, Master, make me obedient? Think about that. Why, are, why wasn't that the lesson? Or, Master, Master, make me love you. Because those things are not things the master can do for us unless we are faithful to him. If we say, master, make me obey you, what we become is a legalist. Any obedience that is not rooted in our love for Christ is legalism. We obey him because we love him. We don't, I've, ta I've taught on this a little bit before and talked about the, the obedience that our children have. It goes through stages and steps. And I'm not going to review that whole thing. But initially, our kids love us out of fear. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to spank you. I'm going to take away a toy. They, don't, they, they obey us out of fear. Then they might obey us out of duty. Well, I have to. But eventually, you want them to obey you out of love, right? And, and, 
It is a weak obedience for the believer who obeys simply out of duty, just because we have to. It's a legalistic obedience. We obey him because we love him. We can't say, Master, make me obedient, because obedient is a fruit of love. And we can't say, Master, make me love, because love is a fruit of the Spirit. It is something the Spirit produces in us as believers. It's not something that we can make ourselves do. Love is the fruit of a faithful connection to Jesus. So what we need to be is faithful, then we will demonstrate our love through obedience before we finally enjoy the blessings of Christ. I hope that makes sense. I think that's really important for Christians to understand. Obedience must be fueled by duty. John talks about this a lot. Just some verses for your future uh, reference and reading. 1 John 2, 3 to 5. How do we know that we know him? If we keep his commandments. How do we know that we know him? He who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar. Whoever keeps his word, love of God is perfected in him. 1 John 3, verse 24. We, uh, he who keeps his commandments abides in him. 1 John 5, 2 and 3. This is how we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and keep his commandments. This is, th- it doesn't get any clearer than this. It's a great verse to memorize or look up later, 1 John 5, 3. This is love for God that we keep his commandments. If you run around, say, oh, I love Jesus so much. I love God so much. And your life is not marked for obedience. With obedience, you're a liar. The Bible states that. Even in our open passage, look at verse 21, chapter 14. He who has my commandments and keeps them, that's the one who loves me. See that? Look at verse 23. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. Look at chapter over, chapter 15 and verse 14. You are my friends if you do what I command. Answer this question out loud. What is love for God? Obedience. It's keeping his commands. What commands? The whole of his revealed word. Yes, what Jesus is saying to his disciples in the upper room is, there are are certain injunctions that I've given you in this life. You've got to keep all those. But, But he's also referring to the whole of God's revealed word the entirety of his revelation. And Christ himself has modeled this. Look at chapter 14, verse 31. So that the world may know that I love the Father, and as the Father gave me commandments, so I do. So that the world may know that I love the Father, I'm going to do what he says. If you want the world to know, if you yourself want to know, do I love God? Look at your obedience. Are you following his commands? There's a, there's a heresy. I don't know if that's too strong of a word, but there's a thinking out there called antinomianism. Anti, you know what that means, against. Namas is the Greek word for law. So antinomianism is, I am against the law. We are, the law is so outdated. The law is ridiculous. A Christian doesn't, we are not under law. We are under grace. Amen. Preach it, brother. And that sounds so great. And yet you come to passages like this where Jesus says, you really love me? And you'll do everything I say. The revealed scripture. I will obey you. It proves our love. That's a ridiculous thought. We come to point four, and this is the encouragement. This is where we're going to spend most of our time. So you've followed really well so far, I hope. If you follow Jesus, you're faithful to him. If you're faithful, 
you love him. If you love him, you obey him. And guess what? If you obey him, you enjoy him. There are so many blessings for those who follow Jesus. And the reason that I'm bringing this up is because these three men that we talked about enjoyed that because of their obedience and their faithfulness. They're still enjoying that today. There are blessings for those who live this type of life. There are joys for true followers that will blast away any of the temporary joys in this life. I go back to the Matthew 19 verse that I read earlier, and I want to read the whole thing now. In fact, we haven't done a lot of flipping in our Bibles. Will you look with your own eyes at this verse? Matthew 19, verse 27. Look at it with me. Because, again, Jesus is speaking on behalf of all the disciples, and so he's speaking on behalf of James, Simon, and Judas. Look at Matthew 19. It's verse 27. Peter answered and said to him, See, we have left all and followed you. What shall we have? What a, what a statement that is, isn't it? What's the reward for following you, Jesus? Isn't it something that Jesus doesn't say? You selfish little Peter, right? You, I can't believe you're asking me such a question. He tells him what we get. Assuredly, I say to you that in the regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, you who have followed me, and if you followed, you've been faithful, and if you're faithful, you loved, and if you loved, you obeyed. So really we could say, you who have obeyed me, because Judas didn't, and he didn't get this enjoyment. You will sit on the 12 thrones. We've talked about that before. Judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And look at this. Everyone, everyone who has left houses or brothers or sister or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake will receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. There are blessings and promises and joys for those who obey Understand this, they're only for those who obey. Go back to the John 14 passage, let's see what they are. You want to be encouraged today? Anybody want to be encouraged today? This is going to encourage you. Because we, we've talked a lot about what our responsibilities are, now here's some of the rewards. And I want to point out the three that Jesus gives us in John 14, as he discusses this with his disciples in the other upper room. If you love me, this is 14, 15 again, if you love me, you will keep my commandments and I will pray the father and he will give you another helper that he may abide with you forever the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him but you know him for he dwells with you and will be in you okay help by answering what is promise joy blessing number one what is promise joy blessing number one say it nice and loud the gift of the spirit first thing you get the gift of of the Spirit. Now, our love for Jesus is not the price we pay to get that gift. What Jesus is saying here is love for him that is proven by obedience is essential for the receiving of this gift. True followers of Jesus will love him, will obey him, and for that, as that relationship is established, Jesus secures for us another helper. 
You've probably heard this before if you've sat in church for any sort of time. There's a couple of words for the word another in the Greek. If I say uh, there, one, is, one is another of the same kind, one is another of a different kind. Okay? Um, if we're having a dessert fellowship tonight and there were, there were several types of dessert and I was sitting with someone, I, I want to continue a conversation, I say to somebody, will you go get me another piece of pie? It would almost be like I'm saying, I, I had a piece of pie, I want another of the same kind, I want another. But if I just said, will you go get me another dessert, that's another of a different kind. The word that's being used here is another of the same kind. The helper that is going to come is exactly like himself. The word is paraclete. It means one who is called alongside to encourage and exhort, and his identity is given for us in verse 17 when he's called the spirit of truth. He will bear witness to the truth and he will empower true followers of Jesus to live for the truth. Here's what followers of Jesus get. They get the spirit who is just like Jesus, who is going to come spotlight truth for them and empower them to live for truth. And it's going to be a permanent indwelling that this spirit does. I love how the change in words come at the end of verse 17. He is with you, but he will be in you. Right In the Old Testament, and up to this point, the Spirit of God has just been with the disciples. Now he will be in you, empowering you to live for truth. And the world doesn't receive this because the world can't know him. The world doesn't accept him. He is unknown to them. Only those who by their obedience prove their love for Jesus... And through their ongoing faithfulness, receive the blessing of Jesus, or th that he provides the Spirit. The blessing, this first blessing, the gift of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit glorifies Jesus by teaching us about him through the Scriptures, drawing us to him, reproducing Christ in us. Think about what the Spirit of God does for true believers. Now, unbelievers don't get this blessing. The Spirit leads us to victory over sin, by praying for us, Romans 8 tells us, teaching us how to pray, showing us what God's will is, and empowering us to walk in that way. The Spirit will indwell believers permanently, pointing us to Christ and granting power to know and obey the truth. Here's the encouragement, okay? We say, Master, make us faithful. Make me hold fast to my confession. And if I do that, I'm going to love you and obey you. And I think I'm going to enjoy the Spirit because we think, how can I love and obey Christ? It's so hard. It's so difficult. I give in so much. Well, the Spirit has promised to illuminate truth to you and then empower you to live it. That's a great confidence for us is that he will help us in that victory. What is the second gift? We want to get through all three today. Second gift is union with the Son, or union with Jesus. So you get the gift of the Spirit, that's an enjoyment. You get union with Jesus. He says in verse 18, I will not leave you orphans, I will come to you. A little while longer and the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I, I live, you will live also. Verse 20, at that day you will know that I am in my Father, you in me, and I in you. This could be referring to a number of things when Jesus says in verse 18, I will come again. 
It could be referring to the point that death will not permanently separate them, that they will be in each other's presence again. But I want to note that the key here is union. Look at verse 20. Just like I am in the Father, just like I have that union, you will be in me and I will be in you. Here's the joy that followers of Jesus who prove their love by obedience receive. They receive this union of Christ. He will be in us. Think about the blessings of that. Romans 8, verse 1. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He abides with us at the end of Romans 8, and nothing will separate us from that love. But the greatest guarantee of union with Christ is given us in the passage. What is the greatest guarantee that those of us who are united with Christ, he in us and I in him, what is the greatest blessing we have? It starts with letter L in the passage. Because I live, you will live also. The union that we enjoy with Christ guarantees us life. That's that's mind-blowing. People who sit under solid preaching and desire Christ for the wrong reasons, just to avoid hell and to have all these blessings... Let's, let's think of it this way. Let, let's think of the piano as the blessings of Christ, right? And they're being offered to all people through the gospel. And I'm way over here, and boy, boy, I would love those blessings, right? And some people just, just jump right to those blessings. They kind of take the long way around and say, I want these blessings so bad. Oh, thank you, Jesus, for saving me. Thank you for the, for the joy of knowing I'll have eternal life. But they don't, they don't go through the flags, right? They don't, they don't love him. They don't obey him. That, that's what true followership is. It's not just saying, Lord, save me from hell. Oh, praise God he did. No, only those who enjoy that blessing of eternal life are those who have proven themselves through obedience. I hope you're getting that. Judas didn't enjoy it. Judas is not enjoying eternal life right now. I told the kids at school that, and some of them were shocked. Well, didn't Jesus forgive him for betraying him? Well, what do you think that life demonstrates? It demonstrates a non-faithfulness, a non-obedience. This is why there's so many exhortations to stick to it, to hold fast. So we will enjoy that life. I love that phrase. Because I live, you will live also. This union, his resurrection, which he's promising here right now, he says, I will come to you. My death is not the end. Is the basis for eternal life. And eternal life starts now. And here's the problem with unbelievers. When eternal life is offered to them, they say, oh, I want that, right? Because they think all that it is is peace and joy in the afterlife, but this life is for me. Eternal life starts now in this sense. When we come to Christ and we have that union with him, we now have a spiritual perception of things and an enjoyment of life with God now that motivates our obedience, that that gives us purpose and mission for this life, and we enjoy that life now, and he is the Lord of our life now. That is the difference between true followers and unbelievers, an understanding and a perception of spiritual things. What is the third gift? I want to get to this and finish. We have the the presence and the gift of the Spirit, which empowers us to live truthfully. We have the union of Christ, which basically gives us life, the guarantee of life. And the third thing is, look at verse 21. 
he who keeps my commands, uh, he who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father. Should be an easy thing to point out there, right? You have the gift of the Spirit, you have union with Christ. What do you have thirdly? Love of the Father. Love of the Father. The whole Trinity is involved in these joys that we have. Isn't that awesome? The Trinity is involved. The Spirit, the Son, the Father. Also that Jesus will love us and disclose himself to us. We, he will know us and understand us. Now, let's go back to these three guys real quick. Because in the midst of this discussion, who speaks? Verse 22, it's one of our guys. Simon doesn't speak in Scripture. James doesn't speak in Scripture. This is the only place that the third guy, Judas, speaks in Scripture. And you know what he says? Why is this not for everybody? That's basically what he's saying. Look at it. Judas, not Iscariot, verse 22. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Isn't he tender? Everybody needs this, he's saying. If you look at John 14, we had Philip ask a question, we had Thomas ask a question, we have Judas ask a question. You know what the questions are? Uh, I think Thomas is first, and he says, show us the way. Show us the way. We don't know the way. Show us the way. And then Philip says, show us the Father. We haven't seen the Father. Show us the Father. You know what Judas says? Show everybody. Show everybody everything. What a great guy, isn't he? Reveal yourself to the world. The world needs the Spirit. The world needs you, union with you. The world needs the love of the Father. Why won't you do this for everybody, he's saying. And Jesus says, the only people who get this are the people who obey me. Look at his response. Jesus answered and said to him, 23, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him. And we, Trinity, we will come to him and make our home with him. Those pronouns are important. I said the Trinity was all involved. Who's the we and who's the our? In the immediate context, he's talking about Father and Son, but just a few verses earlier, he's talking about Spirit. He means everybody. Verse 24, he who does not love me and does not keep my word, and the word which you hear is mine. Excuse me, he who does not love me does not keep my words, and the words which you hear is not mine, but the Father who sent me. Show everybody, Jesus. Jesus makes it clear that these blessings, the spirit, the love, the life, the perception and knowledge of Christ, the joys, the blessings, the promises, only come to those who obey him. I'm tempted to give a real admonishment here, and I'm going to avoid that temptation because I want my words to be what God would say and not merely what I've been thinking about. So let me just say it softly this way as an admonishment. Um, how can I say this? Sometimes even true believers can, can and you can tell I'm struggling with my words because I want to be real careful, can fall into the trap of just wanting to enjoy the blessings without the obligations too. Um, 
yes, there's, there's definitely unbelievers who, who think they're saved because they, they prayed some prayer because they were, so, they were so motivated and urged to respond to Jesus simply because of all that was offered. I frequently tell uh, students in school, and maybe I've told you this before, I could, go, I could go into like a fourth or fifth grade school class and say, uh, does anybody want to go to heaven? And almost all the kids would raise their hands. Because everybody, you know, you, I could talk about hell a little bit and scare these kids and, 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 and then say, all right, all you have to do to go to heaven is go buy me a lollipop or run around the church 20 times. And I could coerce anybody to doing anything. And sometimes when we're presented with the joys of Christ like that, we just, we just do what we're told. And maybe people have sat in a church and they've prayed the sinner's prayer. They've repeated after the preacher. They've, they've gone forward. They shook a hand. They even went to a prayer closet and prayed. And they think they're saved. True believers who really have had that experience. And just because you walked an aisle or repeated a prayer or you prayed a prayer class, that doesn't mean you're not saved. You understand what I'm saying? You may have done those very same things. But those who truly do that obey Christ not just because of the blessings that he offers but because of the joy in knowing who he is and true believers will want to experience as much of those blessings as they can in this life now it is not just about waiting to enjoy Jesus in the future right true believers want to enjoy him now and part of my fear is that there's so many passing and fleeting joys that keep people from their commitment to Christ and his church, and they're so busy doing those other things that the danger is, are they, are they being swallowed up into other joys instead of the extreme and permanent and powerful joys that God offers true believers? I don't know. And I hope that's not the case with you. If you follow Christ, you will love him. And that love will be seen in your obedience. And your obedience will, will cause you to enjoy these blessings as James, son of Alphaeus, Simon, the zealot, and Judas also enjoyed. Josephus reports to us that James, son of Alphaeus, was thrown off the temple, stoned, and then clubbed to death. Simon the zealot, a little more unclear. Some historians say he was crucified. Others say he was sawn in half. Judas, all that is said about him is that he potentially was beaten with sticks to death. It's a reminder from Hebrews 11 that says this, Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. Still others had trial of mocking and scourging, chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, Sawn in two, tempted, slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins, goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. Today, Simon, Judas, James are enjoying the eternal blessings of God for their faithfulness unto him. And let them stand as examples to us as we pray, Master, make me faithful. Let's pray.